0: Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on insulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by Insulin IQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 20 Insulin Resistance and Cognition. The brain is among the highest metabolic rate organs in the body. It needs a lot of energy and it needs insulin's help. When the brain becomes insulin resistant, we create an energy gap that stems from a genetic level. Uh, Dr. Bickman and team have been doing a lot of work with with Alzheimer's and insulin resistance there at, at the university. And in fact, I believe, uh, Ben, you'll tell us a little bit more about the study that you recently released. And we asked you to come on and do the Metabolic Classroom episode today on uh, insulin resistance and cognition. So with that in mind, we'll turn the time over to you, Ben. Great. great. Yeah, Thanks, guys. And thanks again uh, for the opportunity to talk about this great topic.
2: <clears throat> so it over the past couple of years, I've been increasingly interested, as everyone knows, uh, with regards to the role of insulin resistance in chronic diseases, what we like to call the plagues of prosperity. This includes the brain and especially Alzheimer's disease. And I will never forget at a conference when I was a PhD student and another PhD student, we were out on a run and this was in San Diego, a lovely run. And this PhD student mentions to me, knowing that I'm interested in insulin resistance, he said, have you seen the latest article published about Alzheimer's disease where they call it type three diabetes or insulin resistance of the brain. And I had never heard that. That idea was so foreign to me that Alzheimer's disease might, to some degree, be a metabolic problem. Well, that planted a seed of interest, which is now bearing some fruit um, with a very good manuscript that we just published. Now, before I get to that, I want to grease the skids a little bit and just Uh, explain brain energy use a little bit. Now we've had a previous metabolic classroom where we've talked about Alzheimer's disease and the metabolic aspects of it. So some of this might be a little redundant and I would encourage anyone to go listen to that as well. But some of this will be new. So every single cell in the body, and this is also something we've spoken about previously, has things called glucose transporters. And this is a doorway that allows the glucose to come rushing into the cell for the cell to use this as energy. If someone goes back and listens to that previous episode, uh, they will remember that we spoke about something called GLUT4. In the GLUT4, this glucose transporter is an insulin dependent transporter, it needs insulin for it to open its doors to allow glucose in. Well, the hippocampus has lots of GLUT4. It's a predominantly GLUT4 containing tissue. Now, Someone doesn't need to be too familiar with brain anatomy. I myself am not, actually. Um, There are a few key areas that we've looked at in my lab. The hypothalamus is uh, the area of the brain that some people will have heard about because that's the part of the brain that is more in charge of food and diet and hunger and satiety. But it's the hippocampus that's responsible for learning and memory. And again, it's the hippocampus that has these insulin sensitive uh, GLUT4 glucose transporters. And so you need this to be working well. You need GLUT4 um, to be working well in response to insulin for these hippocampal neurons to get their energy in order for memory and learning to occur. Now there are, uh, Jack, I think we had, um, I think we have links to three manuscripts. Yes. The first of these, the first of these manuscripts is published in the journal Plus One, And it was published in 2015. And it was fascinating. This is work of Stephen Cunane um, in Quebec and up in Canada. And the title of this is Regional Brain Glucose Hypometabolism. Remember, everyone, anytime you hear the word hypo, it means less than normal or deficiency. So a hypometabolism, brain glucose hypometabolism in young women with polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. And then they say a possible link to mild insulin resistance. What they found in this study, now this is just a correlational study. It's not which, which everyone uh, appreciates means that it can never establish causality. It's just correlational. They found that women with PCOS who have always some degree of insulin resistance compared to other women, these women, even though they were perfectly controlled for body weight, for age, uh, you know, other other lifestyle variables. Um, they so they were all no, all the same except for PCOS. These women with PCOS had significantly, albeit a little, it was subtle, but they had significantly less glucose use in that region of the brain um, that is associated with learning and memory, the hippocampus. So these are young women; these were women in their twenties, for goodness sakes, and they can already start to detect deficits in brain glucose use. And so this is the kind of instance where you'd think this is a bit of a red flag. But again this is the kind of thing that can be demonstrated in people not only in their 20s but also decades before they have significant cognitive impairments. Another study by Stephen Cunane's group published in 2015 and this is one I think we referenced in our earlier classroom It's it's published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease in 2015 entitled Lower Brain 18-Fluorodeoxyglucose Uptake but Normal 11-C Acetoacetate Metabolism. Anyway, you could look up that uh, manuscript from the notes, Um, and there's more to the title. But this is the manuscript that is so remarkable where they find an actual intervention study. People with just mild Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment have significant reductions— in their glucose use in the brain, but totally normal use of ketones, of the ketone acetoacetate. And so they looked at both the uptake of the nutrients, glucose and ketones, and the catabolism or the burning or the breakdown of those nutrients, which the brain would be using for energy. And again, they found that the glucose uptake was compromised, but not the ketone uptake. Now that brings us to our study. This study was just published. It's in t- it was published in the journal... Um, Alzheimer's and dementia. It's a very good journal. I'm very proud of it. And the title is Alzheimer's disease alters oligodendrocytic, glycolytic, and ketolytic gene expression. And the oligodendrocyte and other cells like glial cells and astrocytes, these are some of the main cells in the hippocampus. And what we found, what we were able to do, it, it was quite remarkable. We had access to a database or a data bank of of human brain samples. So these are people who died and had elected to donate their body to science. And so we had brain samples from humans that had died with Alzheimer's disease and humans that had died also old, so they were similar ages, similar, you know, overall other variables, uh, but they died without Alzheimer's disease. And we basically did a, a, what's called a screen of, of gene expression of of genes involved in glucose metabolism. So the uptake, the movement of glucose into the cell, like GLUT4, like we talked about, and other glucose transporters. And then the catabolism, or the breakdown, once you actually take the glucose molecule when it's come in, and then you start the process of breaking it down, ultimately, for the production of energy for the cell. So we did the same thing in, in ketolytic, or the ketone breakdown enzymes, and the glucose, or glycolytic, the glucose breakdown enzymes. And what we found is that in uh, almost every, I think actually every section of every cell type we analyzed in in these human brains with regards to the glucose metabolisms, the the genes involved in glucose metabolism, every one of them was significantly lower in the Alzheimer's brain compared with the normal or non-Alzheimer's brain. So there was at the actual genetic level that sounds more dramatic than I intend for it to, but it's absolutely true. At the actual level of the expression of these genes, there was there was a deficit. These genes were significantly lower. All, all those genes involved in glucose metabolism in the Alzheimer's brains. In contrast, when we looked at the the kind of comparable genes involved in ketone metabolism, the movement in of the ketones and in the breakdown of those ketones for energy, they were normal. In a few a few of the about 25 genes we looked at involved in ketone metabolism. There were a few that were down in the Alzheimer's brain in one distinct section, the oligodendrocytes in particular, but all the other cell types in the hippocampus were totally normal. And so there was a a modest um, deficit of some of the ketone genes in one distinct cell type, but then everything else was totally normal. This was uh, a very remarkable finding because it uh, it perhaps sheds light on some of those other studies that I just mentioned, like the, one, uh, the second one I mentioned, where you actually see a deficit in the, the brain's ability to use glucose as a fuel in Alzheimer's disease, but not with ketones. That might be explained with what we saw, which is that there is, in fact, a fundamental defect in the expression of these genes in cases of Alzheimer's disease those involved with glucose metabolism, but not ketone metabolism. So we provide some of the molecular um, corroboration or justification for what has already been seen when it comes to these interventional studies. Now, someone may be listening to this and thinking, well, great. Um, is it If it's genes, then that's just what I was born with and then I'm doomed. No. No, uh, we cannot conclude that, and I'm most certainly not concluding that. Um, Whether these are deficits that are inherent or whether they are um, sort of uh, adaptations or an environmental influence or what's called epigenetic, we, we just don't know. I am incredibly inclined to think it is the latter, that there are environmental cues or insults that are resulting in the reduction of these glycolytic genes being expressed. And in fact, I think once again, it has everything to do with insulin. When insulin binds to a cell, the movement of GLUT4 to allow glucose uptake is only one of its many, many effects. Insulin, like so many hormones, has a very profound effect on gene expression. So I am speculating, but I'm confident in this. So I would say it's an informed speculation. I believe that as the hippocampus is becoming insulin resistant, Insulin is less able to activate or, or stimulate the expression of these glycolytic genes. And, and why wouldn't that happen? If you're not responding well to insulin, then you don't need all these glycolytic genes because you can't take in the glucose anyway. And so let's just start to turn everything down. So I think the hippocampal insulin resistance is at least part of, if not, I would say the main part of what's causing these glycolytic genes to be dampened In their expression but insulin has nothing to do with the metabolism of ketones or at least the catabolism of ketones and so those remain unaffected and so the the ketolytic genes continue to be expressed despite the insulin resistance in in the brain now then how might the person who's worried about Alzheimer's which is all of us what might what might we do it's the same old rules And now I'm getting off the topic perhaps a little bit, but I just know people feel so strongly about this. I feel very strongly that the key to pushing Alzheimer's as far down the road as possible, um, but some people are just more inclined to get it than others. There's no question about that. But I do think everyone can push it down very, uh, at least kick it down the road, um, and then compress it as tightly as possible um, to to the time they would be dying anyway. you want to keep the body insulin sensitive. And, and part of this way of keeping the brain healthy is let it learn to use ketones. And that's another part that is so insidious about this whole situation. As someone's becoming an insulin resistant, that means they're ever becoming ever more hyperinsulinemic. Their insulin levels are going getting ever higher um, because those two things always happen in insulin resistance. One, some cells aren't responding to insulin as well, like the hippocampus in this case and two blood insulin levels are elevated well when blood insulin levels are up the liver can't make ketones and so even though the insulin isn't directly changing the brain the hippocampus's ability to use the, the ketones as a fuel it is preventing the ketones from ever being made in the first place and so if you're insulin resistant and hyperinsulinemic but those are redundant you are not only making it harder for your brain to use glucose But you're also depriving it of the only other fuel it is attempting to rely on, which is the ketones. You're stripping those ketones from the blood. You're not allowing the liver to make those ketones. So do your brain a favor. Give your brain a break. let it use ketones because in those times when you're making ketones which the brain will very very greedily use the brain will happily use ketones for fuel there is no deficit in fact there's only evidence to suggest it's improved with ketones when you're making those ketones your insulin is low and so you're also helping your hippocampus to be more insulin sensitive and so you keep that expression presumably you're going to keep the expression of those glycolytic genes higher than normal and thus, you're allowing the brain to really be the hybrid engine that it is designed to be, using glucose and ketones freely. But in order to do that, you've got to keep that insulin low, allowing the body to make ketones and allowing the body to be, especially the hippocampus, to be uh, to maintain a higher degree of insulin sensitivity.
0: Wow! Wow! That's right. Yeah! Wow! <laughs> wow!
1: Hey, hey, Ben, I got a question for you. Yeah. Um, are we starting to see the hierarchy of the researchers in Alzheimer's and dementia go down this path?
2: Or yeah, it, yeah. Oh no, this is made? no. This is getting. Oh, it's sure. I mean, it, there's no question that medication is still the the standard of treatment or the standard of care. There's no question, um, but <clears throat> they continue to fail. Uh, the 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 historic view of Alzheimer's disease is that there's generally thought of. Two, two problems occurring, that you have the accumulation of amyloid beta plaques, these little kind of proteinaceous plaques that disrupt the brain from working, and you have nerves that get all bundled up and tangled. In this case, what could be happening, uh, well, those, as, as people are making more and more drug targets to those things, you know, to try to fight the plaque formation and to try to uh, fight the nerve bundles, they continue to fail. So these these drug interventions that that well they'll show in a mouse model hey look we gave the mouse this drug and their nerve tangles went away and the the plaques went away and you start to treat humans with these and they do nothing so that the addressing Alzheimer's through the with the typical strategies just continues to fail and I think that is why this appreciation of ketones is is gl- is growing like it is. Not only because of desperation, because the standard of care just isn't really working, but because the evidence just continues to be so compelling, including randomized clinical studies now, um, which we'd mentioned not long ago, uh, where it, this is more and more confirming that in Alzheimer's disease, the brain is desperate for energy. There is what, what Dr. Stephen Cunane refers to as an energy gap. And we need to fill that energy gap. And if glucose can't do it, then ketones are the only other option. And again, the tragedy is while the brain is screaming for ketones, most people are keeping their insulin elevated all the time to the point that they're never really making any ketones. And of course, insulin's elevated because of the refined starches and sugars um, that they're eating all the time because they've been told to eat a high carb diet and eat six meals a day. And that is a wonderful way to make sure you're never making a ketone and a wonderful way to make sure your brain is starving to death.
3: <laughs> hey, so, so um, it, if, if we have this type 3 diabetes that is an insulin resistance um, thing, do you, see, do you see in those tissues that you studied, is there a history of obesity in those patients? So if some, mm. does someone with Alzheimer's, are they more likely to have other um, factors of insulin resistance?
2: Oh yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Not that uh, Corey, that's a great question. Not that they will necessarily be obese because obesity can occur with insulin resistance or not. And right. that's reflective of the way the fat tissue is growing, of course. Um, but, uh, there was a study based out of Finland. This was a correlational study. So again, it's just, you know, nothing more than coincidence, but this study out of Finland found that someone's they looked at risk factors associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease, and they found that an individual's fasting insulin was had a had a more significant, or what was called the higher p value, which is which is just to say that it's less likely to be uh, a, a coincidence. They, so right. the, their fasting insulin was more significantly correlated with their Alzheimer's risk than their age. So wow. this, they, I mean, th- that is a pretty powerful takeaway that your insulin may matter more than your age does. But what's also fascinating, they went beyond just insulin. They measured fasting glucose, they measured two hour um, glucose after oral glucose tolerance test, and then then two other measurements of glucose and insulin, I can't recall. But every single one of those variables related to glucose and insulin, every one was very statistically significant. But others, like education level, people commonly say education is so significant, it was much less significant. Drinking and smoking status and blood pressure, none of those were significant at all. But these measurements of insulin and glucose were very significant. And again, fasting insulin was second um, most significant only behind someone having an APOE4 genotype.
3: All right. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. Well, Ben, we've got some questions coming in about uh, what you just talked about. Can I throw a few of these your way? Yep. Yep, sounds great. Great. Um, let's see. There's, boy, there's quite a few here. Let me, let me pare down a couple here. <clears throat> um, from Sherry, concerning the brain, intermittent fasting has helped me go off ADHD medications. Uh, I'm an educational advocate, see many children with ADHD. Could this be something that could help them?
2: Wow, Hal, that's awesome. So there is no study currently out, to my knowledge, looking at the effects of, I would say, ketosis, which is probably what is happening with that intermittent fasting. I, I don't know of studies, so I do need to be careful. I, I have to just mention that up front. However, I strongly suspect that there will be at least I was, many, I'd say a good number of people that have ADD or ADHD would probably respond very well to ketosis. Um, just because then they are not subject to the peaks and troughs that comes with glucose when the brain is yoked When it is so totally reliant on glucose because it is never allowed to use ketones It's never allowed to adapt to ketones. Then the brain is subject to those highs and lows and glucose is very um, it, It's it's very dynamic uh, where you eat a, a snack and, and then depending on the snack and depending on the individual, your glucose levels can plummet um, down to 50 or 40 into the 40s milligrams per deciliter, um, which I think is maybe around three millimolar, uh, I think. Um, so, so low. Now, if someone's keto adapted, so-called, they will barely notice that and they will feel perfectly fine. But if you aren't, I can't help but wonder, in some instances, is, is the person's brain reacting to this relative reduction in glucose and that's making it difficult for the person to function at their optimal level and it's sort of re, re, um, presenting itself as ADHD. So I'm speculating a lot of speculation. I do think however, that there is something to be said for ketones and the degree to which a parent would want to try this with the kid, of course, is very, um, uh, you'd have to be careful. Uh, uh, I am always very mindful of, of, eating habits with my kids. I don't want to foster any eating disorders. Uh, but I do love the idea of when they wake up, um, giving them protein and fat, like, like bacon and eggs or these, you know, egg, little bacon, egg, cheese muffins that we sometimes make. And I'm imagining, um, that they are getting into deeper ketosis and the brain thrives on ketones, especially in development. And this may be one of the reasons why, um, uh, literally, the brain is built this way. And you see this in newborns and children. Like my eight year old boy, I bet if he fasts just for 12 hours, say he eats at 7 p.m. and doesn't eat again until 7 a.m., I would bet his ketones are probably into the two and a halfs. Mm. Um, and I couldn't get above two unless I fasted straight for probably 36 hours. So we know the older we get, the longer it takes for us to get into ketosis. In contrast, a newborn a newborn is in ketosis almost every single moment of its life, of, of his or her little adorable life, and partly because breast milk is so fat rich that that doesn't really kick them out of ketosis. But even if you kick a baby out of ketosis, they will get into deep ketosis, like two millimolar plus in just, uh, just a few hours. And this, this is a lot of work by Dr. Stephen Cunane, and so I encourage anyone to look into this more if they'd like, look up his work. Um, but the, the, the leading, one of the leading theories that, that humans are born obese, which is totally uh, uh, unique uh, compared to any other mammal born on land who doesn't have to float. We're the only land-based mammals that are born obese. And the, one of the leading theory I'd consider it as to why is that we're also the only mammals born with a brain that is larger than the birth canal. We have a very big, hungry brain. And at birth, it is the highest metabolic rate organ. And so the fact that we have all this chubby fat from this adorable baby that can be burned into ketones to fuel the brain, it matters. And when you have a child that is born premature and they haven't had time to get fat because that happens at the end, that's kind of last trimester work as baby getting really fat, which of course is happening as mom is getting increasingly insulin resistant and her elevated insulin is helping not only mom get fat, but also baby. Um, but if you have a baby born premature, they are always leaner than they ought to be. And if you don't give them a lot of fat, they will very likely have sig- mild to significant learning disabilities um, throughout, their, throughout their lives. They just didn't get enough ketones when it mattered, as the theory goes.
0: Wow. It kind of gives new meaning to the, uh, the old adage that kids are, that kid's wired on sugar.
1: <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, it's yes. like <laughs> yes, that's right.
1: Back to that question. So, so what is? I mean, I think we've answered this before. Why are we so? Why are we are so afraid of ketones? It seems like I that think, in the medical community, and it just seems like in general. And it, and it can't be just about ketoacidosis,
2: is it? I think it is. I think the whole fear of ketones is one hundred percent derived from type 1 diabetes, and the untreated type 1 diabetic. And that has bled into a fear of ketones, even with regards to type 2 diabetes, which is profoundly unfortunate because they are exact opposite diseases. They are not similar, they're opposites. Um, so Rich, I do think it is completely derivative of a fear of ketoacidosis in type 1. And that is f- for years, in fact, this is just until just a few decades ago, ketones were considered—they uh, um, were considered metabolic garbage. It was just looked at as 100% a waste product and had no value. And the explosion of interest in the past few years has been just profound. Not only highlighting, and in a way, almost remembering scientists' work from the early 1900s, um, like Warburg. And, and Veach and Krebs, the famous Krebs who in, like, discovered the Krebs cycle, as we call it, they knew the nutritional and caloric value of ketones and a lot of its value throughout the body as an energetic molecule. What we also know now is that ketones are on their own almost acting like hormones. You have a ketone that will bind to specific receptors on cells. And totally independent of it being pulled in and used for a fuel in the mitochondria, which it it can be, it will bind to receptors, and some of these are called G-protein-coupled receptors, and will actually elicit uh, a, a signal cascade in the cell telling the cell to do things, like make more mitochondria, like reduce inflammation. That is not because of its energetic or caloric value, It's because of its cell signaling value. So ketones are not only an energy source, but they are also a signaling molecule telling the body, giving the body certain signals, telling certain cells what to do. And basically the theme of all of that is good. These are good signals. So the fear of ketones, I think, is not only unjustified, um, but it's very unfortunate because Rich, I think to your point, you have individuals who could profoundly benefit from being in a, in a state of ketosis through adherence, say, to a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. And yet, ketone is such a, a polarizing word that, that, especially in the medical community, unfortunately, that they may be told from their very well-intentioned doctor to avoid that at all costs, and it's just a dangerous fad that will kill them. Uh, and that just couldn't be further from the truth. The only time ketones are harmful is when it overwhelms The the so called buffering capacity in the body, and then it starts to make the body acidic. But the average individual can never even come close to that. The only time a person will get into ketoacidosis is when they have no insulin. Now, there's a a couple other exceptions to that, like binge drinking really, really hard alcohol. Um, Then you can force yourself into a state of ketoacidosis. Um, But for the average individual, <clears throat> you can't do it. You can only do it when your insulin is truly absent. Keeping your insulin low just means you're ketogenic to the point of ketosis, which does nothing to your pH, nothing to acidosis.
1: Yeah. And, and, and hey, Jack, I a- Jack, not to get—I don't want to keep on ketones, but but, but Ben, isn't there? An, there's an energy plus for ketones, right? Don't ketones produce more ATP than glucose, mm-hmm. and is it more efficient?
2: Yeah, so it is. It is. So, so ketones have about the exact same caloric value as glucose, where it's considered it's it's four calories per per gram. Um, so it, it matches glucose in that sense, <clears throat> but it appears to be what's called a cleaner burning fuel, and and that idea is based on this this fact that when you actually account for what the oxygen is doing, like when the cell is breathing and it's using oxygen to burn fuels like fats and ketones. Um, ketones will make relatively more ATP per unit oxygen burned than glucose will. So in that sense, it does have an advantage, but I would say it's, it's, it's negligible when it's all said and done. So I like to be very careful at the level of the whole body, when it's all said and done, I would say it's it's probably a meaningless difference. But um, there are the other there are other benefits to just keeping insulin low and making those ketones in the first place, independent of actually burning the ketones for fuel.
3: Hey, my question is: you can um, you can measure fat adaptation like in the in a muscle cell, right? By measuring the number and density of mitochondria, right? Mm-hmm can Can you do that in the brain in cells in the brain can can you see okay this guy brain wise is is uh, fat adapted or ketone adapted
2: yeah so you we can't I don't know of how I would do that um, in a living individual although right. stephen kunnaine Stephen Cunane probably would I bet he would just say we can infuse this this labeled ketone and just track how much your brain is gobbling up and that might right there reveal it um in 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 my lab if we have brain samples including samples from the hippocampus which we do get from our lab rodents so we're so grateful to be able to use rodents because i can't get brain samples from living humans but we do find that that uh there is a phenomenon that would be reflective of keto adaptation where you can you can use ketones as a fuel measuring the rate at which the brain is metabolizing, and the keto-adapted animals, um, those brains, those hippocampi, will use ketones better. They will have a higher metabolic rate with the ketones than the control-fed animals.
0: A couple, uh, couple other questions, from one from our website just now. Uh, once a neuron of any type becomes insulin-resistant, can it be reversed?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't know of any instance in any cell type where the insulin resistance is irreversible. Um, <clears throat> usually, or at least in my, in my hands, in my lab, and my experience, one of the key <clears throat> mediators or causes of insulin resistance within a cell is a type of fat called ceramides. And, and there's a lot I could go into on that topic. Uh, I won't. I will simply say... Just as much as I can cause a cell to grow its ceramides or accumulate ceramides, which is then causing insulin resistance, all you got to do is remove that signal and the ceramides will start to just naturally be cleared out. They are not a permanent feature within the cell and thus to a very real degree, the insulin resistance is not permanent. So again, I think anyone can be incredibly optimistic. Uh, and rely, take this statement at face value, insulin resistance is totally reversible. Now, I would say the person who was insulin resistant and reverses it still probably needs to be more careful, not probably, does, more careful. They need to be more careful than the person who never had insulin resistance in the first place because some bodies are just naturally more inclined to be insulin resistant than another body.
1: Yeah. Hey, Ben. Ben. We talk about reversing uh, diabetes or type two diabetes because of the A one Cs are getting so much better. Are we seeing any kind of reversal in Alzheimer's and dementia?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, no, not to the point of totally normal. Like Rich, to your point, we can take a type two diabetic who's full clinically diagnosed type two diabetic, and within just weeks, they can be no, they can be no longer diabetic. You know, every clinical outcome that was based that the diagnosis was based on is now gone, it's normal. You cannot do that with Alzheimer's disease. There appears to be absolutely irreversible deficits in people with full confirmed Alzheimer's disease. However, the evidence does suggest that they do get somewhat better, so you can reverse it somewhat, but not to the degree of normal. And so I would say there is a point of no return, although never a point of no hope, Uh, never a point of no improvement. But I would say all the more reason to never let it get that far and to do what we can to address it as early as possible. And, And I'm utterly convinced the key is maintain insulin sensitivity. And at the same time, by keeping insulin low, which is I think the best way to maintain insulin sensitivity, you'll be making ketones, and your brain will be greedily using them and adapting to them well. And you'll never have that energy gap
1: Ben, my mother, uh, bless her little heart. Uh, she, you know, had nine babies and and started to gain weight and and, and did all the the nutritional guidance of the
2: all of the, the 90s, low fat,
1: 70s, low fat, uh, you know, count calorie. And she got obese and then got type two diabetes and then died a horrible Alzheimer's death, and it was just awful. Yeah.
3: Hey, can I tell a personal story that goes along with that? My mother, who's ninety three. About oh, about five or six years ago started getting um, just confused and sort of just wasn't herself right she she lost motivation to get out and do things I mean she, my mom is 93 and lives in a home by herself now and we I convinced her to start eating low carb and it just changed her cognitively her motivation went up um, and she started just thinking clearer and she didn't have that cloud or that fog around her. And if you asked her, if you ask her now, she'll say, yeah, it's because I stopped eating carbs. She just basically stopped eating carbs. It, it was awesome. really cool. I mean, it's a one sample study, yep. but, but it was like really cool to watch that, that change in her. Oh.
2: Yep. No, in fact, Corey, I like what I like about what you said here. We are, and I think appropriately, we're always quick to qualify these statements as "this is an anecdote; it's just one person." Yeah. But in a way, it's more than just one. You know, it, it matters yeah. to her. It matters to you. Like, yes. think about her whole circle. So when when people on social media, especially, are so quick to say, "Oh, well, it's just an anecdote," now I'm a scientist, and so it's not like I don't appreciate data. You know, the, the plural right. of all of these anecdotes, but I do think it's so unfortunate. It's so. Distasteful when people want to ignore an anecdote because it doesn't match what they believe the science suggests. I think um, that's a very unfortunate thing. But yeah. I think again, it's always appropriate to mention it, but it also is appropriate to mention just how valuable those anecdotes actually are.
3: Yeah, but there is science that that oh yeah justifies that 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 justifies what happened to her, right? I mean, there's science yeah. that shows why everything that we
0: just got done talking about. Yeah. That's right,
3: yeah. exactly, yeah.
0: A question from Sandra, are there more ways we can encourage our brains to use, use ketones besides diet and fasting? Coming from PCOS my whole life, uh, will my body ever really learn to use ketones?
2: Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, uh, I I think those are the ones. Um I know people will maybe maybe those just don't sound sexy enough anymore. Yeah, yeah. Low carb diet and yeah. fasting, but I cannot think of anything that would be more effective than that. It's it's possible and I even hate to say this because someone's going to think it's just too cliché. Exercise may also help, but not for the reasons you'd expect. Um where people want to think, well, exercise just because it'll make me more insulin sensitive. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely, that's great. But exercise also makes the blood brain barrier a little more permeable. It allows it to be a little leakier. And that's a good thing. It's supposed to happen. I speculate that part of it is to allow more of these fuels to get to the brain a little more easily and more rapidly. And so in addition to low carb and fasting, I'm tempted to say perhaps some exercise also helps. Um, For those energetic reasons and and insulin uh, not even being the main reason I'm mentioning it at the moment. Um, But yeah, I do think you should have hope. Um, Also because there's evidence, albeit in pilot studies, to suggest that even PCOS is reversible. And so uh, just like the PCOS is reversible, I think you should be very optimistic that, that even this study I mentioned in these young women with PCOS where they had um, demonstrable reductions in brain glucose use, I, I would hate for that to be discouraging to someone. I would rather it be motivating. And so I would say uh, you might have to work a little harder. You might have to roll up your sleeves a little more and work a little harder um, in order to just make sure your your brain is getting those ketones from time to time. And I can't say how much and how often. I, I can't speak to that. Um, but I would just say... You'll have to work a little harder, but I think it's worth it, and I hope you would too.
3: Can I can I say something? Maybe maybe like the whole sleep thing and the stress part of this, and um, other factors that you know, chronic inflammation factors that we know influence insulin levels too, right?
2: Yeah, well, that, that's right. All of those matter, no
0: question. Yes, yeah, sometimes we uh, we we search so diligently in life for a more complex answer, right? (laughs) And sometimes the answer's just staring us right in the face, but it's too easy to see, right? Yeah, Yeah. good point. Let's See if we got a couple more questions here. Um, Let's see.
2: Uh, Hey, I just wanna say guys though, Jack, while you're looking that up, Mm -hmm. as Rich's room has darkened and we can't see him as well, what a relief, (laughs) it's
3: so hard. (laughs) Hold on, how
2: about this? (laughs) <laughs> hey
1: jack you should put on your goggles
2: <laughs> oh yeah distracted i yeah, almost thought is...
1: i almost put on jack's goggles when you start talking about your data
0: <laughs> you're kidding <laughs> stop, eating stop eating carbs stop eating carbs <laughs> to avoid alzheimer's <laughs>
1: <laughs> jack needs to stop doing drugs
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> hell with carbs <laughs>
2: Yeah, Jack, mixing your meth with your carbs doesn't make it any better.
0: <laughs> you guys, stop, are on, you're on stop, to me. Stop. I get it. You're on to me. Um, from Jennifer, how many grams... This is a little kind of off topic, but not really. From Jennifer, how many grams of polyunsaturated fat is too much per day? I'm worried about nuts and seeds.
2: Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I wish I could answer that. I don't know. I've never seen a number. I, I would, however, say... Um, uh, I would say you don't need to worry about that. with From seeds, I think you're fine. Um, like nuts and seeds, like if you're eating them. Really, so I, I do think that's a bit of a rabbit hole, and, and I don't think it matters that much. I would just say as long as you're not using those seed oils, those so-called vegetable oils, then you really just don't have to worry.
1: Hey, hey Ben. I think, Jack, did we have a question on our intercom about olive oil? Last week uh, there, there, are some, there are some people in the keto world that think olive oil is not good for us yeah we well did.
2: there is some there is some com, there's some pretty interesting evidence suggesting that olive oil is not the magical fat that everyone thinks it is I don't know honest honestly i don't know how to interpret those at the moment. much of that data is coming from animal studies and then and then you can't help but say, well when is an animal really eating monounsaturated fats and it would not be often. Um, so I, I don't put a lot of credibility um, to, that, to that view at the moment, I confess. I would just say um, anytime you're adding oil, I, I would say rather than worrying about how much olive oil you're getting, I would say rather worry more about how hot you're getting it, how, how heated it's getting, how hot are you cooking it. And then uh, because olive oil won't have as high a... a, a integrity point or stability as saturated fats. Um, so Rich, I think there is some maybe growing truth to the idea that olive oil is not as magical as many think. I don't think the evidence is sufficiently compelling for people to worry that much about it. But it is less stable than saturated fats. Um, and so maybe all the more reason to get to to enjoy the animal based fats, which are always a mix of saturated and uns and, and monounsaturated for the most part. Um, not just almost purely monounsaturated like olive oil is.
1: Yeah, I'm mean, basically at an IQ, we teach people to, to use olive oil cold and to cook with more mm-hmm. animal waste. That's, that. yep, or, yep, that's or why we do Or oil, which
2: also has got a heat point of, I think, 500. Yep. Uh, yeah, also, one last comment, though, about olive oil. Um, it is the preferred fat that human fat cells store. I know this is a huge tangent, so I promise I'll be brief. When you eat fat, most of the fat we eat a fat cell will actually convert it into olive, the main fat in olive oil, oleic acid, 18 carbons with one unsaturated bond. So even if you're eating saturated fats and the fat cell is told to store those fats um, because insulin is is promoting that storage, the fat cell will mostly convert it to 181. And so olive oil, I like to joke, is what most of our fat cells are made of. Hmm. But it's not because we eat the olive oil. It's just that the fat cells prefer to store the fat as the olive oil fat.
0: Question. Would you say that uh, APOE4 and insulin resistance are equally concerning for Alzheimer's risk? Seems like someone with both would need to step up prevention.
2: Yes. Oh, I think so. So I do think ApoE4 is more relevant. Even that same Finnish study that I mentioned um, also suggested this, where the ApoE4 genotype was significantly more relevant than the fasting insulin. Fasting insulin was number two, I think. ApoE4 was number one. So I I have to say ApoE4 is more um, relevant than fasting insulin, just because of the sum of evidence suggests that. Now, maybe time will balance those out a little, But even the APOE4 genotype, it could be that there is, in fact, once again, a problem with insulin. Um, There is evidence to suggest that it's not just these plaques that get formed. that It is, once again, an insulin, an energetic problem. So it still could come back to that. So I would say if someone is an APOE4 genotype, all the more reason to keep that insulin in check, because you're going to have a harder struggle as it is. Don't let high insulin make the fight even worse.
0: From Dennis, does walking really encourage the expression of vascular endothelial growth factor in the brain? What ketolictic epi- epigenetic interventions may arise? <laughs> Whoa, that's beyond my pay grade to even read the question. I'm Certainly. proud of you
3: for getting that out. Hey, <laughs> boy. Jack, put your glasses yeah. back on, buddy. <laughs> Man, that was tough. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. So I I actually, I I wish I knew, I, I don't know the degree. I know that VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor is increased with exercise. Um, and that is a way of promoting new blood vessels to form, you know, keeping tissues more oxygenated. I actually don't know the degree to which that happens in the brain. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me if that does increase That VEGF would go up. Um, I don't think that would have a direct effect on ketolytic gene, work or expression, Um, but it would certainly facilitate blood flow and help prevent the brain from ever becoming hypoxic. Now, that is relevant in a different type of Alzheimer's. There's a form of Alzheimer's that's called vascular dementia, which doesn't quite fit within this topic we've been talking about, Um, but even vascular dementia um, is related to insulin resistance, and I actually have a section in my book why we get sick about that topic, Um, so I would say that the vascular aspect of Alzheimer's, which is a real phenomenon, wouldn't have anything to do with ketolytic, um, gene expression.
0: Well, we're bumping up right up against the hour. We're going to, we'll make sure that the link to your study, which again was just released last week, uh, right, Ben?
2: Yep. Yeah. And it's open access. We paid a little extra so that no one else would have to pay anything to get it. So authors sometimes have that option of paying more um, to get it open access uh, so that anyone can read it.
0: We'll make sure that link is is in the stream notes, no matter where you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or on our website, we'll make sure that that link is, uh, is readily accessible to everybody. And also just uh, to let you know, we have all the episodes of the metabolic classroom that are being uploaded. They're kind of, uh, we're kind of spacing out the upload, but they're all, all of the, Uh, previous episodes are being uploaded to our YouTube channel. So subscribe there if you want to watch all those episodes. Uh, And also watch uh, wherever you get your podcasts. The Metabolic Classroom podcast is available now wherever you get your podcasts from. And and, uh, all of the Metabolic Classroom sessions are being reformatted in podcast format so you can listen to those as well. Any other last, uh, last words? We're running right up against the hour. Can I just
3: say something? Um, Dr. Bickman, Ben, has been mentioning these researchers, you know, and, and their work. I, I like how he particularly is fond of the Canadian researcher. Um, I but, <laughs> but I was just thinking, wow, how cool is that? These guys are on cutting edge. Um, research and this is what they do for a living and they're introducing to the world this new information that it's really going to change and then i thought hey ben's doing that too yeah that's, yeah what, c- man, c- come, on. Living, come on come on cory the street grid you are, living, ben. <laughs> you are living the dream man that is so cool that we have a guy with us that is really cutting edge on this on this research it's it's anyway it thrilled me this morning so Well,
2: listen, let me, in fact, let me turn that around. Thank you. That's very nice. I I love, I love being a scientist. I love getting paid to find answers to questions. But when you find an answer that you think uh, addresses a very important question, it is frustrating when you don't have, when you aren't able to convert that into a solution to a real-world problem. And yeah. so what we do here, part of my great delight with Insulin IQ and Health Code is this deep satisfaction that there is this translation from, from bench to, to real world, from lab bench to the streets, where really, I mean it, when you think you have a valuable answer to a question, it's frustrating when you can't let people um, leverage that, when, they can't, when you can't help them utilize it. And so, as a scientist, I know sometimes scientists will get criticized for having, for kind of being a little entrepreneurial. And I don't even care. Um, criticize me all you want. Uh, I I love the idea of translating um, scientific answers into solutions to metabolic problems.
1: And, and Ben, we, here at Elevated Insulin IQ, we've treated thousands of people with metabolic disorders that have reversed those problems because of of, of the information that you've developed, what we've developed on our website. It's, it's, it's awesome.
0: Yeah. This is synergy. One of the things I I love most too about our audience is that we have hardcore scientists uh, that are way over on one end of of the spectrum and submit questions that I can't read, obviously. And then (laughs) we have so many people that come to this equation who visit our site, who watch the streams who, are, who have just come to this space. They've never heard any of this terminology. Maybe it's someone, a, a, a young woman with PCOS, whose doctor has said, you have something called PCOS, and you are probably insulin resistant and close to being type 2 diabetic or whatever the diagnosis is. And she comes to this equation not understanding anything about this. And we really do try to try to bridge those, those two audiences and, and make it something that everybody can benefit from. And that's one of the most exciting, fulfilling things for me personally at Insulin IQ. Thank you for listening to The Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at InsulinIQ.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious Meal Replacement Shake. Learn more at GetHealth, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H, dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ.
1: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.